What's up, Brew Theology listeners? Welcome back to another episode of Open and Relational Process Theology with Dr. Jason Whitehead, Part 2. If you liked Part 1 and you like Part 2, or you like any of our episodes on the Brew Theology Podcast, make sure you go to iTunes and rate us, review it, go online to Twitter, Brew underscore Theology. We're also at Facebook and Instagram at Brew Theology and share that with your friends and family. Check out the website, brewtheology.org. It's a pretty amazing, dynamic website where you can find different ways where we have curriculum, we have a leadership guide, uh, we have different topics. There's ways in which you can contact us and you can start a chapter in your area. Or if you know people and you're like, oh, I know this person who would love this, great. Put us in contact with them and vice versa, and we will do a conference call and get a Brew Theology chapter, just like our friends in Jersey, in your area within the next month. Easy peasy, pretty simple. If you want to contribute, if you want to support us in any way, there's a donate button. You can also go to the Patreon page as well. It's on the website, and you can be a monthly supporter. You can be a one-time giver. There are incentives for that. Ultimately, what we want to see are these communities that we get to participate in every Thursday night in the Denver breweries with different beer and different people, different viewpoints from millennials all the way to baby boomers, male, female, a vast amount of perspectives and eclectic and meaningful dialogue in a world where dialogue is really not encouraged and people put each other in the corner. We're doing something respectful that's full of love and grace and beauty and so uh, please be a part of this movement with us. If you know of anybody who wants to do this, that's what we want to see ultimately at the end of the day are more of these communities popping up across the country. So speaking of across the country, we are headed to the Wild Goose Festival in July. It's July 13th through 16th in uh, North Carolina, Hot Springs, North Carolina. We're going to camp. Uh, we're going to drink beer. We're going to smoke cigars around a campfire late at night. We're going to listen to music. It's a, it's a, it's a camp every year where you hear speakers talk about justice and spirituality and music and the music and the arts. And we're going to have a podcast tent. We're going to be over there with the podcast crew. So come meet us. We'll also have a booth on the main road, a Brew Theology booth, where you can talk to us, meet us in the flesh. We can set up a time where we can talk later in the night as well. We just want to hang with you and hear your stories, because that's ultimately what the Wild Goose Festival is all about, is about the different stories happening in your world, my world, and everybody else's world. Uh, Next thing on the list, after July, the next month, we have Theology Beer Camp coming here to Denver, August 18th and 19th. So if you live around the area or you want to fly into the coolest city in America, come to the Mile High City. We are the capital of craft beer in America with 12 local breweries already giving beer to the event, along with an amazing taco place called Adelita's Cocina y Cantina. And we even have some coffee from Nixon's Coffee House supplying the goods. All, all this is going to be at our friends over at the Platte Park Church here in Platte Park, Denver, Colorado, which I call the greatest neighborhood in the U.S. of A. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for the love, and we will see you soon. Peace.
So we are co-created alongside something that we, some of us still want to call God and others want to call something else. This God is no longer omnipotent, all-powerful. This God's no longer omniscient, all-knowing. This God is good. Is, is this God all good? That's, that one's debatable uh, within process, I would assume. And then uh, Stephen likes to use the word beauty, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And because omnibenevolent is loving and good. And sometimes those words, uh, they don't jive with people. And then the impassable, non-feeling, the immutable, right? God uh, not changing. We're getting rid of all those labels. So if God is one word, God is love or God is beauty. And I, I, I'd love to hear, you know, Stephen, you have a good take on why you use the word beauty. Uh, well, I should preface this by saying... I don't like saying things as if they're the only thing I'm going to believe forever. So I may have said something that Ryan overheard once, and he took it as my gospel. But I can riff on this because, you know. So uh, the, one of the reasons why I like beauty, and I think what Ryan was hearing is in contrast to the way that uh, my reaction to the way that the word love can be used for God. And I was sharing with our table that I've known plenty of people who have been abused while the word love was being used. And just like I struggle with God language sometimes, love language can be just as distorted when power and coercion are coming into play. And, um, and so language about beauty... Uh, for me, I haven't seen abused as much, uh, although I recognize that cultural human beauty is one that, that can be abused. But, um, but in the natural world, I don't see that play out as much. And so seeing the way that God is luring us toward beauty, toward possibilities and creativity, is hopeful to me especially in talking with people who have love, who have been abused through the language of love. And so this, this is going to be like jumping to a, a whole other topic altogether, but it's related. Uh, so speaking of the beauty of the earth and the universe uh, that we are within, uh, you're a farmer, you're a, uh, you know the land better than all of us here, uh, I don't even know where to start with this, but uh, for you, you did not come to process thought through theology. Can you talk about how you came to process thought and how that affects you with your hands working within the soil? Yeah. Um, so a little background, I worked in religious context as a pastor for years, both in church and parachurch ministry, and I went through a pretty strong deconstruction in that. And so it was in that time where I, uh, where I sort of started hearing about process thought through process theology. But at the time I was farming, and so that was my primary engagement with the world around me was now as a farmer working with the land rather than uh, in a pastoral context, as, a, as an ecclesiological pastoral context. And so I was looking at the way process thought was playing out in the world that I was experiencing on the farm, in the natural world, and seeing it 
affirmed through alternative agricultural practices that we're prioritizing relationships within the soil and the plant life and then plant life into our in, into mammal and human life and so uh, so to me process thought is is most appealing because it helps orient myself to the greater world and it's a benefit that it helps me re imagine a theology that makes sense rather than i think before if you know if this was seven eight years ago i would need a theology that makes sense to look at the rest of the world but process thought helps me through my experience in the world uh wrestle and and come to some understanding of a theological context so process thought is all-encompassing specifically we've talked about the first episode Mostly a very Christocentric Judeo-Christian principles um, coming from a, this Theo God logical study of God perspective, and then um, we've we've also I don't think we've touched much on this, so I, I'd love to talk more about um, the world that we live in, also other religions, universalists, atheists, Buddhists, Hindus, and I know Jason, you had mentioned um, last week that there are I didn't know this there are Muslims who are into process thought as well. And so this is something that people said, oh, I can, I can dig this because it's all-encompassing. People talk about having like a large Jesus tent. I say that at times. This is a large universe tent. Yeah. So uh, let's, let's go even back further. Whitehead, Alfred North Whitehead. We haven't even mentioned his name, really. Who wants to give a little brief introduction on him? And then we'll talk about <laughs> and then we'll, And then, we'll, yeah, this is where this, is co- this comes from. And then also, we can... Also, uh, according to Jason, not, he's not related to Alfred North Whitehead. Although I don't believe it, I'm going to need DNA, some kind of Where's family the birth tree. Certificate. Yep. The long form. Long form birth certificate. Okay. It's in Hawaii with the Bahamas. Um, <laughs> I mean, the, the, and I don't, uh, admittedly, I know more theology than I know thought. I know, I know enough thought to be dangerous, and that's more contemporary philosophers than it is um, history here. But uh, Alfred North Whitehead was. Uh, originally a mathematician. Uh, he wrote Principa Mathematica, I believe, was his kind of seminal work in that um, field, moved or immigrated to the United States, uh, taught in the Northwest. I can't remember which Ivy League school it was, but moved out of math and into philosophy, in which Harvard, uh, moved out of math and into philosophy. And uh, as I understand it in a really brief way, um, with the rise of postmodernism and philosophy at that time, um, he was pushing back to some extent, as well as the ri- rise of scientism at, at that time, um, against the uh, desire to lose all of our meta narratives, all of our big stories about how the world works or how life works. And so, um, process and reality, and, and his other work in, in the field modes of thought, adventures of ideas, um, there's more that I'm not mentioning, um, were attempts to utilizing science and, and philosophy of that day to develop a unified theory for how the world works together. Um, the very, very basic kind of understanding of, of process thought and history. But... Um, and one of the, the difficulties with it is that along with kind of creating the metaphysic, he creates a language to go with it. And the language is really hard to approach at times, which is 
Um, if you want to sleep well, pick up process and reality and just try to get through the first five pages. Um, if you want to sleep extra well, do the first whole chapter. At least that's what I used to do. Um, I've heard people say that you can't read it alone. You got to read it in community, which is very process. That is very I think process. You did it on purpose. <laughs> With right. beer or without? Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. I, I usually say beverage of choice. So, um, for for those who want to talk process, but but can't imbibe in, in alcoholic beverages. But um, uh, after that, it immigrated out of of Harvard to the University of Chicago with Charles Hartshorn, I believe. Uh, and there was a process school in at the University of Chicago. Uh, where most of the philosophers there didn't understand what the heck Whitehead was talking about at all. And so it took, takes a long time for some folks to, to catch on to it. Uh, theologically, it immigrated out of there to Claremont with John Cobb um, and David Griffin, who's a philosopher rather than a, a theologian, I would say, at the end of the day. Um, some here at ILIF School of Theology, there used to be a, a fairly strong center of process thought at ILIF in the late 70s, early 80s. Bring it back. Well. So, yeah. And then there's me just kind of hanging out, talking Jason's going to bring it back. What other, was Hawthorne, Hart, I mean, Hartshorn, did he have another label? Because um, we did read him in my seminary program, but I don't think we ever used the word process. Was he part of the Jesus Project movement or anything like that? Does yeah, he fall in some other category? That I don't know. Okay. I, again, I only know him through articles. Um, and even then, it was much more of a tentative connection between the thought and the theology. With Hartshorn, it became more explicit with Cobb. Um, yeah, I think Hartshorn just introduced the idea of panentheism, and then Cobb went off running with it and developed a Christology and all that. Define panentheism, Dan. <laughs> it is the idea that, in some respects, God is in the world, but cannot be completely defined by, by the world. So there's this transcendent and there's imminent... Um, part, which goes really well with Whitehead's work. And we mentioned in the first podcast, I think we talked about the consequent nature or the transcendent piece, uh, part of God and the primordial and then the consequent. But it shouldn't, that dipolar nature shouldn't be seen as, you know, literally two faces of God or something like that. It's just a way of describing it. But so moving away from the God language, let's talk more about, uh, process philosophy and thought within other religions. And we do have people from different religious backgrounds or a religious people are here. I mean, something that I found helpful. So when I went to beer camp in LA and was going to meet John Cobb, I was a little worried because I come from a background where what I, how I plug into this is open theology. So I reached out to a friend of mine who's, who's pretty well known in this discussion and said, okay, just so I don't look dumb in front of John Cobb and all these people, like what's the difference between open and process? And so if you're coming from an evangelical background, you probably would have heard the word open. If you're coming from a more mainline tradition, you would, you would be more processy. Um, if I, I'm going to, I hope I remember this right, process is kind of the big tent and open gets to sit underneath it. And, and many of the things that open theologians believe are process theology, 
Um, and then we also have a few disagreements. Like I'm probably more Trinitarian than a lot of process people, but there are process people that are Trinitarian. So just if you're coming from a, the other side of the coin, you might know this language of open theology. And some names there would be uh, Clark Pinnock and Tom Ord um, are pretty active in that. Greg Boyd. Let's not forget for Greg Ryan. Boyd. I love Greg Boyd. Love you, Greg. Yeah, but Greg Boyd, he's got he's got a couple articles in there somewhere in the internet that kind of compares and contrasts uh, process. And oh, okay. I think Tom, at the end of the day, is a lot more comfortable with the process thing, whereas Greg isn't. And uh, yeah, I'll reserve my judgment. So now going outside of Christianity, Liz, if you want to. Yeah, sure. So I, I think that, well, so I've been super impressed with, with process theology. I, I bought a, the book, I bought a book, and all my friends around the table are all, you know, process. And I, you know, it's been really interesting to think about it. But as it was pointed out to me, I think by Ryan, it's not that big of a leap to go from being an atheist Buddhist to being a process, somebody who espouses process thought. Um, I think it's a, big, a much bigger leap to go from being a classical Platonic theologian to being an open or processed theologian. But I mean, it's very similar to a lot of Buddhist concepts, like the idea of interconnectedness. I mean, that was like the Buddha's big discovery. You know, he achieved enlightenment, all the veils fell away, and he realized that he and everybody else was essentially all one and the same and all had this grand potential to realize enlightenment and free themselves from suffering. I mean, so that, and this idea that your actions, directly impact everything else in creation across not only your lifetime, but infinite numbers of lifetimes. I mean, so that's a concept that I have found that extremely nourishing. And this idea that, you know, it, it's important to continue to relate to people and to relate to people ethically and to relate to yourself ethically so that you can relate to other people. I mean, so these are all really new, not new concepts. And this idea of um, karma which, you know, and I, I've read some American Buddhists, you know, and I tend to be influenced by them more than maybe some more classical Buddhist thought, but it's all in there, I think. But it's this idea, too, that, you know, with karma, yeah, like things that you've done in the past cause and effect. You know, you, things you did in the past are creating your present cause and effect, but we are always at the, at the knife edge of possibility, and we always get to make a choice, and that's how I think at least modern karmic thinkers or modern, modern Buddhist thinkers get away from this sort of foolish notion that, you know, oh, the things that happen to us that are bad are just, we're just paying our debt from previous lives and we're locked into having bad things happen to us because of things we have no control over, which in some ways resembles some of the more, uh, you would call it abusive or troublesome aspects of Platonic theology. So this idea that there's this knife edge of possibility that we are always existing on the front edge of creating a future where we get to make a choice. Again, very similar to process thought, not hard to make that leap. I think for me, what's been interesting about it is that it's definitely allowed me the potential to con to possibly begin believing in God again, which is not something that I've believed in for a long time. But it's this idea that, on one hand, a process God resembles a lot of the God that I imagined as a child, and I was not brought up in a strict theology. But this idea of, like, you know, God is kind of there for everyone, and God is good for everyone, and God loves everyone, and this sort of, like, broadness of it, and, and God kind of walking alongside with you. And then, you know, working through, like, 12-step program, like, you're asked, being asked to find a higher power and you're, you're expected to give into that higher power because you need to get out of yourself. And so 
for me, it, this feels like maybe a more natural outpouring of that. Like some Buddhist concepts are very nourishing and very wholesome and very ethical, but they feel a little cold, like things just exist in the world. You know, um, karma just exists, Buddha nature just exists, but it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily aware of your presence. And so this idea that there could be a force that's very similar to a lot of the Buddhist ethics that is a force that walks along with you and is aware with you and works through your consciousness for me, I, I, I'm finding that to be really helpful. But we'll see what happens. It's like what Steve said. Like, I say this now, but of course, it's an evolving. Like, what I believe now is not necessarily my orthodoxy. So, I, I think that's true of all of us around the table too. Of course, even though we don't say it explicitly. That's it. That's all I have to say. I'm not going to say anything. Dan's no longer a Calvinist, is what he really wanted to say. But there's always tomorrow. God already knows if he's going to be a Calvinist tomorrow or not, um, if you're a Calvinist. Um. Jersey Shore God. Well, you had mentioned that you know of other uh, religions where this is taking place. Can you just well, tell I, us no, a little I just about know that? kind of the, the beginnings of, of places. I mean, you know, Rabbi Bradley Artsin's book on, on Jewish uh, process work, I think, is probably the most accessible theological book for those who come out of a Judeo-Christian background or a Jewish background to try to figure out what all this means. Um, so, I mean, that's he's one person who's really... Um, can, you, can you give us the name of that introductory book? That, God of Becoming and Relationship. Okay. And that's Rabbi, Rabbi Bradley. Bradley Artson, A-R-T-S-O-N. Um, great book, e- easy to read. He wrote it... Um, for and about his autistic son, um, who was asking similar questions to what we talked about earlier about why, who is God, uh, why would God do this to me? Um, and he was really looking for that way to uh, speak to the different ways that we're able in this world to make meaning um, and to find within his faith that, that way of doing that. Um, the Handbook of Process Theology, I think, has a lot of good accessible articles. That's uh, Donna Bowman and Jay McDaniel's book that was it's about 10 years old now. Uh, they've got one in there from a Hindu philosopher and theologian, I believe, an evangelical uh, Jewish, and there may be one other either strictly philosopher or a different faith in there. Can, I'm, you, can you say the name of that book one more time? So The Handbook of Process Theology. Uh, McDaniel and Bowman um, would be the the editors there, and they're different articles written from from different perspectives. There's one in there from John Cobb and a couple other uh, male and female uh, and persons of color uh, theologians who see process from their varying cultural kind of milieus. Um, some more thought oriented, some more theologically oriented. Um, you know, at the end of the day, um, what's kind of interesting about human beings is that we like to make sense of things. And if we can't make sense of it, we at least like to think of it as meaningful. Now, whether that's a religion or that's a philosophy or that's an ethics or that's a guru or that's, we want to know why. 
And that's that's something that we like to think is unique about ourselves. I think the more we're learning about the world, the less unique it becomes sometimes. Um, but our capacity for language to often explain why something is meaningful is difficult because language is different. I mean, even just around the table, language is different about how we talk about the world and uh, comes with baggage, comes with meanings that when I communicate it, it doesn't mean the same thing that you communicate. Um, you know, Trinitarianism is something that I have a difficulty with at, at times. Not that I don't find value in the different kind of forms or the relationality between it. Um, I just, I don't have time for other parts of it. And so, you know, I've spent more time on the theology side than I've spent on the Christology side or the spirit side, though one could say that imminent stuff has to do with spirit in Christian language. In Jewish language, it wouldn't mean anything. Um, but those many words for God really do mean something coming through a process thought lens. The way that uh, Rabbi Artson talks about God is almighty in that space and wanting to kind of rethink and redefine that to, to um, be more authentic to what the Hebrew, the context of the Hebrew scriptures in that, that time is really important. Yeah, if, if it's all just going to be the same from the time our justification or whatever words you want to use, our, you know, born on date, um, arrived, then what the hell's the point? at the end of the day. And if we're not in some way co-creating a reality that is more meaningful for um, the people we love, the people we haven't met yet that we may love or whoever we're going to be in relationship with, then just don't do it. Find the thing that helps you do that. Find beauty, find creativity, find divine compassion, find, again, that lure that out of its meaning and space in your life calls you into greater being. Okay, not greater self-being, but greater being in relationship to that around you. So, yeah. I'm curious, what are some other books that you guys have read that you find really helpful for people that want to get into this? I've got one more. The Sorry, I've got plenty of them. It's, the, the curse of teaching a class in this. Um, Robert Mesley's Process Relational Philosophy, an introduction to Alfred North Whitehead. So Process Relational Philosophy, Robert Mesley, M-E-S-L-E. Uh, he's a process philosopher writing a lot about relational power, which I think is very central to process thought um, and writes from a very personal side of that so it's accessible and easy um, to access to start to get the language down in the philosophical system I think uh, you may have others I don't necessarily have a book but I think the best one of the best starting places for people is uh, Jay McDaniel's edited website Jesus Jazz and Buddhism and, and one of the reasons for that is that uh, and I think what Jay does so well is it's almost like his website is pointing people to ways that they see process thought being played out without getting bogged down in the language. And, and I think for a lot of, for most people, they could care less about 
heady language. What matters is how it gets played out. And, and, I, and for me, process thought is continually being affirmed through what's being discovered and rediscovered in the world around us, both just from, from across the spectrum of the sciences um, and, and, so, and, and art. Uh, and so uh, McDaniel's website does a fantastic job of pulling from a visual artist and a poet and pointing these, you know, a particular idea together uh, and, and saying, this is what process looks like in the world around us. And so I think that's, that's the resource that I recommend the most to people because you don't have to know Whitehead to do it. And in a lot of ways, it just it starts to make sense. Because I think, we're, for me, I think we all see this playing out in the world. We just don't necessarily have language or are thinking about it in that way. And that, that's a really great on-ramp. And then you can get, and if it really matters to you to get into the language in a different way, if it works within a discipline that you're involved in, then you, you know, would maybe go into some different directions. But I think that's one of the best places too. And he's really um, uh, broad in his umbrella of people and and ideas. And so he has things about um, uh, Islam and process thought. Uh, Mormon and process thought, Hindu, Buddhist and process thought, Jain and process thought. So pretty broad too. So it's not exclusively a Judeo-Christian language. One that's on my bookshelf that I'm looking forward to reading is Monica Coleman's Bipolar Faith. Um, Okay. Sorry, I didn't mean to. Why don't you talk about it? Have you read it already? Okay. Same thing on my wish list on my, you know, digital shelf. So, so it's uh, Monica Coleman is a womanist process theologian out at Claremont School of Theology, and um, writes from the perspective of of a person living with bipolar disorder and um, kind of understanding faith and theology through that lens. She has an edited volume on creating women's theology as well that's really good, but a little less accessible. Um, so, yeah, I was going to suggest you guys took all my answers. I was going to say Jay McDaniel's site. Um, that's, I go back to that. I try to go there every week, maybe every day, just because it's so good. I always find something new. Um, like he said, he's got kind of Eastern perspectives on, on process that I find very helpful. I've got um, some friends in, in China now, and it helps me understand their cultural context. Um, and Monica A. Coleman, uh, Marjorie Suhaki has a few intro um, books that are that are good if you want uh, a, a woman author. She, I think she has, I think it's on, is it Process and Faith that she has that Q&A PDF of what is process and it's very accessible. Um, again, that's more through a, uh, a Christian lens, but still pretty good. Um, I think I, I also, I think the first process book that I read was Bruce Epperly's um, A Guide to the Perplexed. I don't remember if it's process theology or philosophy. I think it's theology. Yeah, and Epperly, uh, kind of similar to Jason, comes from a very pastoral perspective, so accessible. I, I'd recommend his. I think there's a he did one on Job as well with a, from a theodicy perspective. Yeah, he's got yeah. a lot of books now, but his Guide for the Perplexed is pretty good. 
Um, the Ask Dr. Cobb section in the old Process and Faith website can sometimes pinpoint particular answers that are not always as um, language neutral as you would hope. But um, I think there's some good answers from a process perspective to particular questions uh, about that. And I thought, if I remember correctly, Philip Clayton wrote a book called Transforming Theology. Yeah, so that's Transforming Christian Theology. Um, that one's more, it's definitely more accessible for Christians. Um, if you're really nerdy and want to get, you want to go in all the way, and maybe you want to cry a little bit, I suggest reading The Predicament of Belief. It is so good. That's probably like the one book that really changed it for me. If you guys could see Dan right now, he's <laughs> glowing. He is. I love you, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, if, if we didn't mention our friends over at Homebrew Christianity, I mean, Trip Fuller has done how many podcasts on process theology? Um, yeah. So, yeah, go follow Trip on Twitter. Look up homebrew Christianity. And then, so just lastly, defining words that if people come across and they get scared, concress, prehend, any other words, like, let, can you just define some of these words? So, so it's not scary, because I think there's, there's a language barrier. Right. Well, I mean, there is, to any system, there's always a barrier to entry um, at the end of the day. And some of these guys may be able to better define these words than, than I can. Um, first things first, if you run across a word you don't know, find a friend. So, you know, this is, you know, the, you don't have to figure it out by yourself. And that's like we were just mentioning a moment ago. The intent is, you know, grab a beer, uh, whatever it is that you imbibe in and a friend and sit and talk about what you're reading because it, helps to understand it together or not understand it together at the end of the day. Um, do you want to take a couple of these, Stephen? Yeah, I, I, I could. I, what I was going to say is I think one of the challenges I have in talking process thought is that process thought is, um, it really is an encompassing way of thinking that goes against such a dominant meta narrative that's embedded in our culture. So when we say words like, prehension or concrescence, those words seem, seem foreign because we don't think about what those words would mean even in a modern um, Cartesian language because they're just a part of what we're saying. So there's this huge hill to get over to just say, okay, when we're going to talk about process thinking or process theology, we're going to try and undo some of the fundamental assumptions of your worldview which is a huge hurdle just to start with, and then to add in technical language, which we don't use in normal, you know, as, as regular people, we don't use in day-to-day -day conversation. But when we're trying to reorient ourselves to a new way of thinking, having this new language really comes into play. And so I, I think that's one of the big hurdles that a lot of people have when they get to it, is they feel like they have to adopt all of the language. And I, I don't, I haven't met a process person that says you have to adopt the language, other than Dan. No. Uh, but but that is that is a real challenge. But when you're when you're starting to read some of the more primary material, then you come across it, and and it can really weigh you down if you let it. Yeah, I would agree with that completely. Um, yeah, so well, and where two or more are gathered. 
So, 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 so the, the two words that you hear often, uh, and you had, you had mentioned them as well. So can you just define con- concress, concretion, prehend, prehension, uh, these, yeah. Sure. Um, so the philosophy of organisms that White had developed, one, the big shift, and this is going to get uh, muddy real quick, and then hopefully we'll clear it up. One of the big things that he's pushing against is this uh, idea that that the world is a mechanism that's just moving in uh, this mechanistic way, and that things don't things are eternal in their essence. That they're you know the, the table in front of us, the people in front of us, they're one kind of person, one table that exists from now from the time of creation to, to its destruction. Um, but what Whitehead was really saying is that the world moves through these interwoven, interrelated events of time. So when we're talking about the intersection of these things, we're saying that there's this past that's being brought forward, and in the moment where something new is happening, bringing forward the past, the moment that that's happening is a concrescence. That concrescence happens at, could be at a large level in the form of a conversation. It could be something that we don't even acknowledge because it's so minute in our system. Bacteria experience a form of concrescence. Yeah, yeah, I I often try to explain it to students as the, it's that instant when something becomes concrete. That is, an experience is taken into oneself coming out of that past. So the present becomes the past, and in that moment that it becomes the past, it becomes concrete. That is, it gets fumbled around in our, our brain, if we're just going to use human conceptions here for, for a moment. Um, and so it becomes a part of the whole and adds one more to the whole. And then prehend. So prehension is a way that Whitehead uses to refer to the way that that an and um, this again gets tough in the language. And 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 the language is sometimes helpful because for process thought, humans aren't the center of the universe, which surprises some people, but it's very hopeful to me and a number of others. but So it's easy to use language that is associated with humans, since that's what we're thinking. But when we're talking about words like concrescence and prehension, we're talking about those things in all living experiences. Um, so prehension refers to the, the way that we, that each, okay, each moment brings forward the past to influence it. So in a really crude way, we can say, the fact that I was born in the Midwest to a, to a white Scandinavian family influences who I am. In a really crude way, that's a form of prehension, that those things are coming forward and giving me um, some guidelines for moving forward. But that, that is happening at every, every layer of existence. It also gives you better hair than me. Well, um, but I mean, yes, it is that. I mean, the prehension is is at least as I understand it, and then 
again, um, open to interpretation there that, but it's what we bring with us to, to that moment. It's what gets called forth by the present experience to some extent that impacts the ability to interact with that way. So please, Dan. And I think Whitehead, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, any of you guys. Uh, We're very apologetic here. <laughs> All right. Are we Canadian or what? <laughs> hey. Uh, hey. Um, I believe Whitehead explains it as, as feeling the feelings of others when you're talking about um, your kind of moment-to-moment experience of the world. So going back to the concrescence word, when something becomes concrete, you are able to apprehend or prehend this data, if you will. How much damage does it do when you come from a tradition that wants to wipe away your past? Like, I mean, I really think that it was talked about in my tradition that, I mean, you, your sins are gone and your, even your desire to sin is gone. And that just, that one, that's not reality that's not human experience, but like in the face of a a kind of the thought and theology you're talking about here that says that's integral to who we are, whether we're with Christ or not with Christ, but it it affects us. Um, I don't know, maybe I'm asking you from being in therapy, like what does that do to people when they try to separate that part of themselves from their decision-making, from their worldview that well, that stuff's been washed away, so it doesn't affect me anymore. I mean, how do you... It just seems like that causes a whole lot of problems that I haven't really thought about this way before. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really... um, I think that... I'm not a psychologist, but I think there's a lot about therapy that talks about reintegrating who you are and the experiences that you have and that that's a way of dealing with trauma and, you know, to embrace those parts with a real sense of like love and compassion and understanding and sort of seeing it in your new context, you know, this is who I used to be and this is how it felt. And now I'm in a broader context and I can understand that. But, you know, and that's one of the things too, that I like about that. I like about Buddhism and maybe that I like about process Buddhism is this idea too, that like we can't expunge parts of us. We can't prune little parts of us that we don't like anymore, but that we can be, we can become really whole people. <laughs> so I asked him to silence it so we wouldn't have his phone making noise and look, now he drops it. I really like the idea in Buddhism that, that we're whole and that we're whole with our sins and our good things and our bad things and the things we like and the things we don't like and that it's whether or not we live a good life or we don't live a good life is not so much that we've gotten rid of or pruned the parts that we don't like, but it's that we are aware and we love all parts of ourselves, but we choose to turn towards those better parts. And I think what Christianity has often done is we take those bad parts and then we pile shame and guilt on top of them. So there is no redeeming them. And yeah, that's, I think it's that's that's, that's hard. so detrimental. I think it's 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 inhumane to expect people to do things that they can't actually do, and I don't think we, any of us can actually. Well, but that would mean you'd have to admit there's a thing called psychology. Oh right. Oh, is there? <laughs> so I have a, 
I have a list up in my bathroom that has like positive and negative qualities. And this is coming out of some literature. Um, but I actually changed it. I typed it up and changed it because I think the idea, even in that literature, was like, here's the list of good things and here's the list of or here's the list of not good things, and here's the list of the, the good things you can do to counteract those bad things that you find in yourself. But I don't. But I think the idea was that at some point, like you would just kind of lift the, that list out of your soul, all those bad things, and you'd throw it away, and it would never exist anymore. But that's just not how I see the world, yeah. and I don't think that's as healthy of a way. I mean, yes, you can say I choose forgiveness over resentment, and that's good. But I think you have to love your resentful self too, yeah. and you have to love other people when they are resentful. And, and that's that relationality piece is I'm going to continue to relate to you even though you are presenting a, an emotion or a way of thinking that's more problematic. Yeah. I, I, think, I, I, I think that's a wonderful thing to think about, but it's not easy. Yeah. I think from a Christian perspective, there's a way to talk about the... Since we say that God is with us moment to moment and that God brings or makes possible the possible or possibility, we can talk about that as, as the grace of God, and that's what allows us in a way to kind of deal with our past but not be bound by it and, and in some sense transcend it. And that's kind of where that hope comes from. Terribly shameless book plug. Um. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> Uh, and, and a very basic understanding of process in it. Uh, Redeeming Fear is the book that um, I wrote about trauma and hope um, and constructing theologies of hope out of traumatic situations using process work. Um, so terribly shameless, but I'll make it anyway because I have no shame this late at night. Um, <laughs> that explains why your eyes lit up when she said right. redeem. You were Ooh. like, I was like oh yeah, that's, that's the name of the, the book. Let's but, plug that one more time for <laughs> listeners. I think Redeeming Fear, uh, a constructive theology for living into hope is the, the name of it. Um, yep. I just Get did. it everywhere. It's, so it's a one fortress press. Yeah. Um, and it's got, like I said, a basic kind of understanding of process in there and what I would call the empathability of God in, in spaces like you're talking about. Um, the mere fact that you're bringing them up does not mean that forgetting about them works. Right. I mean, it, obviously, it, it, if it worked, then there would be no conversation because you wouldn't remember what you were supposed to remember that you're right. not remembering. Um at the end of the day. And so the way that I tend to think about things from a therapeutic lens out of this, this process world is that um, we're all going to have situations in our life to differing degrees that challenge who we are, challenge what we believe, challenge what we think about other people, our ability to relate to others. Whether you want to call that trauma, whether however, whatever you want to term that situation is, um, those experiences tend to color the narratives, the stories we tell about ourselves, yeah. the story we tell about the world. They they tend to shade them in in a variety of ways, and we we kind of hyperfixate on them. And for me, what process does in that particular frame is to say yes and. It's not, yes, this happened to you, you have to stop there. It's yes, and you're still alive. One, 
That's, uh, and and that's no small feat, and, no. and that's that's for for certain people, you're getting up day to day. You may be asking for help from a therapist. You may be asking for help from people who care about you. And in that, woven into that story, is that small thread of hope. For me, it's that that small moment, and, and that to me is what therapy to some extent is about. But what theology should be about as well is that in this present time of turmoil and struggle and othering of another, there are always small threads of meaning that call us to a greater awareness of who we are as people and how much we are loved and cared for. And if all we are is hyper fixated on the negative aspects of it, we can't ever see that thread. And if we can be for that person the one who draws attention to it, what it does for me is it complicates the story. Because all we do is tell simple stories about sin or negative things about it. it. complicates the story. And we're complicated people who are interacting with complicated meaning systems, trying to make sense out of a world and make it hopefully better, not just for ourselves, but yeah. for others. And so, yeah. That's where I would go with that. Thank you so much, Jason, for your time. This was great. Stephen, Dan, Janelle, Liz, this was fun. Was it fun? It was fun. It was fun. Thank you. We'll have him back. We'll have him back for sure. Uh, you need to write something new, right? Cheers. Cheers. Just a couple of articles. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>